Pilbara Killings by Sabine Shetland, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 3 He crawled back into bed by 2am, but it was a fitful sleep. Marinda's face came up over and over again in both guises, one pristine and untrammeled by misfortune, and the other tormented. He didn't sleep well, imagining how much he had contributed to her despair, finally fully wakening to a scratching sound. The light filtered in, in the space between the door and the linoleum floor, and he screwed up his eyes to its entry. His head was pounding. He slowly got up and went to the small faucet to take a trickle of its brackish effluent. It tasted all right, but was probably some primordial bacterial soup. He would worry about that later. Pulling at the curtains against a rush of light hurt him. A small bilby was pawing at the door, and when he opened it suddenly, the rodent scarpered off. Fortunately, no one had been sick the night before, and the main veranda was spotless. He lit a small roll your own and blew out a plume of fragile smoke rings towards the car park. Those quiet mornings were always the most unsettling, and last night's effort had only seemed to rekindle his doubt that he might be in the wrong game. He fiddled on his laptop with the remnants of his resume, just in the event that someone might roll him whilst he was out of town. Finishing up its revisions, he shaved, watching himself in the mirror and laughing out loud at his paranoia. But he knew that all of his suspicions had at least gotten him this far, and it bothered him why a forensics man might be leading this case. The whole thing on its face seemed a little incongruous. Did no one care, or did everyone? Returning to the computer, he wasted a little time googling himself. Everyone's life was so accessible, just at a click's end. The earliest cyberprint written by his department when he was appointed was fairly mundane, and it read a little like an obituary, and then one written by a disinterested party. Late forties, Mount Scopus High School graduate, single, Western Australian Police Force Academy status active, Masters in Criminology, Murdoch Institute, PhD Forensic Psychiatry, pending UWA, Secondment Office of the Carabinieri Venice Prefecture, January 2013 until November 2014. Supervising Professore Baldassare Castiglione and Head of Detectives, Signor Armando Fratelli. Expertise, Ballistics. Testimony in 18 criminal trials, District Courts of Western Australia 2002 to 2017. Most recent, the State of Western Australia versus Henry Charles Overton. Court 6-1, trial by jury, September the 15th to 25th, 2017, before Her Honour, Judge April Gibbons. No doubt if he had a Wikipedia page, it might have speculated as to whether he was gay or conversely, the images and the click icons for more images could have readily shown him on the arm of some girly minor socialite. His history wasn't particularly impressive to some. One longish-term relationship with a lawyer. Because of her, he had grown to hate them as a group, as if she were now their representative exponent, pleading for his most favourable consideration of her tribe. What a strident forceful woman always walking at a pace and a half in front of him like she was perennially late for a meeting. If that were not enough, he had also grown to dislike her for her embraced politics of the ultra-conservatives.
lawyers and fascists. What a bad combination. Another more than mere fling with a sweet nurse whom he would intermittently see for the feel of her busy mouth in public places. She was so demure in her professional life, but no one knew of this double existence. He might privately consider himself more manly for these encounters, more adult, even if his own family still thought of him as an overgrown child. He meditated on all the things his CV did not say and replayed his life moments. It was a bad obsessive habit. His affability and humour more often than not had caused so many to underestimate him and to treat him unkindly. His laxness in speech and the trenchant ability to vocalise the first thing that popped into his head had cost him more than one job and many alliances and had led to a peripatetic lifestyle moving from one precinct to another. He recognised that he was one of the least proficient exponents of his work's political games. Wasting time drawing up old collegiate photos of himself and searching for a better face to have presented on his profile, he became lost in the process, saddening at how he had grown so much older and rounder, more curmudgeonly and reclusive. There were few lately of, of him in company, and he had transformed into some avuncular figure who was more uncomfortable around people than he was alone, the curious living space of a solitary man. He'd watched his friends grow with their fat, happy, widening wives and their demanding gaggle of children, and he had wished for all the things he couldn't ever have, living in the most unlikely places of his imagination, like an atheist riveted to a TV preacher. But he was not at all that soft gravy. Most would like to think that there's some version of the good guy, the knight in shining, the honest bloke. But there are times anyone wants to forget the closet skeleton feared, the things people go to sleep with at night frightened to their core, the horror that someone will reveal all the next morning. But they never do. He thought of all the wasted time and effort crying over that old fear with each new job. Fourteen months was just about the time most places had had enough of him and had either pushed him out or he'd felt the urge to leave. Before that fateful time, there was always the clean crispness of people actually wanting him until they'd discovered just how to exploit him and then how to fuck him over. That little window where he was still introducing himself at meetings and they were actually nice. The ephemeral security of each new job might just settle down to let him insert some new woman into his just-formed life, a hoped-for permanency, a little stable happiness just then. But the them for him never seemed to arrive. It never settled itself, like a dog circling around repeatedly looking for God knows what in its new bed until after an eternity it would finally lie down. The thing he had been looking for had never pushed forward, and he had moped on how he had found himself turning around nearly 50 with a shit job, answering to shit people about shit subjects for shit pay. And for no shit reason. Watching simpler, less thinking, decent blokes taking all the credit and getting all the accolades. Snapping out of it, he showered quickly and drove to the town hall to meet with Constable Land Curtis. He sat in his car, astonished as to why on earth they would have had such a front, a facade, mock Greek with a sculpted triangular entablature above a flat cornice. It seems strange that such emulated architectural attention should have been paid here of all places. Below it, an even cruder carved frieze. 
He thought how it was that some committee by its date almost a hundred years ago had wasted its time on this bullshit. Outside the front, the obligatory cenotaph dedicated to those five brave soldiers who had fallen from the town in the Great War, all at the one battle at Ypres. Two of them <coughs> with the same name, he assumed, were brothers who would know. It was such a ridiculous conflict, perhaps they had been father and son. He felt the distinctive feel of being in an Australian country town again. This type of thing was always the centrepiece shit. A bit of collective memory for something no one now recalled. They might as well have put up a tribute to Trafalgar or the Battle of Culloden. He did the sums in his head and the loss rate for such a small place that had declared war all by itself on the rest of the world was disproportionately high. He imagined it all, some jingoistic town hall whipped up by generational farmers too old to enlist but proud enough to send their finest and their stupidest. Probably the first view of Europe those poor bastards had seen was some trench fouled with their mate's shit, piss and blood. But perhaps he was being too harsh. Just then, then Curtis greeted him at the front door with a requisite donut and coffee and Zimmerman swooned away from one old conflict to the next. I didn't know what you'd like, Aidan. May I call you Aidan, or do they call you something else? Biggest dickus, I hear, he joked, and his mouth opened up sufficiently to flash a little specialist amalgam. He seemed personable enough, and Zimmerman made his assumptions of the man the sort of bloke who stays a friend right up until he's been crossed just that once. Christ, there had been enough of those in Perth, but that animal didn't seem to exist in Venice. There the office politics was far more sophisticated, more historical and nuanced. At least when they stabbed people in the back Venetian style, there had always been a little warning. A front on Mafia Kiss had retired two of his mentors whilst he had been there, quiet, civilised. The hatchet job done over all a good lunch with a decent Amarone. Where he worked now, they just changed the locks on the office, rubbed out the passwords and turfed the offending desk shit in a box onto the front street, like ending a sour relationship but without the screaming and the tears. Lord knows he had been through both tribulations more than once. His head swirled with the idea that somehow, although he couldn't quite see it now, that he was being landed in it. He snapped back. Uh, the dickest thing is a long story, Zimmerman smiled. Again, another practised line. He'd read the dossier on Nancurvis. Summing him up, he appeared, if anything, a little weary in his expressions and slowed down in the speed with which he could volley back one-liners. The wit had remained, just not the pace. The sort of person who was always going on about, a, I should have said this or that in conversations and interminably replaying the moments out loud. For a small office, he imagined, it could get quite annoying. But that aside, Nan Curtis seemed to show no signs of past abuse. He had started out almost 30 years before as a high flyer, but had fallen foul of a DC who at one time was just up for the job of assistant commissioner, even after Nan Curtis had publicly pointed out some tiny flaws in the DC's work. Well, it was a little more than that. The DC was being bribed not to depose certain witnesses in a racketeering charge on one of the city's main contractors that led all the way back to the previous state premier. Jobs for the boys and all that. Like all things, Nancurvis the whistleblower had found himself out in the cold with not a pot to piss in.
Zimmerman had read the transcripts of complaints about him. The offhand asides, that he was a passing acquaintance and the eye hardly knew him's, or the hurt he was unstable's and the like, all expected testimony of some arse holding a witness job had put them up to it. For such a gregarious man, it seemed to me that there were none around back then who had anything good to say about Nancurvis, even after all he had, who had testified had sat on his patio, drunk his beer and eaten his barbecued steaks. There wasn't a single friendly face, nor one with a decent word. The force could be like that sometimes, and Zimmerman had been on the brunt to end himself. Enough times that he could know what shit creek Nancurvis had rode through might look like and how he could find himself left up there without the requisite paddle. Anyhow, by the time they dragged old Nanker's reputation through the mud, it didn't matter what was true. All people remembered was what a snitch everybody thought he was. The worst was how some honest chap like him could be vilified enough to give away his due diligence and sit on his fat ass in a place like this just waiting for time to pass. Or how he might have tolerated the mud that stuck and the DC went on to a fat pension, and the ex-premier sits now on some nice board of a merchant bank, doing God knows what. Van Curvis was considerably overweight, and even the ten or so steps leading up to the front of the building had brought out in him a soft wheeze. One strategic shirt button was undone, and his hairy belly flesh was pushing outwards in a way Zimmerman couldn't ignore. It persistently bothered him, and he pointed to Nancurvis to right himself. The station crimes office was fairly typical, with its folders piled high and sad ancient cups lying under the soft glory of the fluorescent neon lights with their skin of white furry mould covering lakes of residual coffee. Nancurvis rifled through about a dozen dusty files until he came upon the clean one he wanted, and the sides of his mouth curled up with the pleasure of knowing amongst all the mess where anything was at a moment's notice. Zimmerman had a theory about people's offices, but he wasn't going to share it today. Those piled high with folders were just as bad, he had thought, of that perfectly clean desk only adorned with some paperweight or one of those ghastly snow cones with having a great time in wherever gothically stenciled in gold on the plastic. The real workers all lay somewhere in between, and although he was making assumptions about these hick people, he figured that Nancurvis most likely missed a lot of stuff in his investigations. After all, if he had been relegated to this crap hole, he probably deserved it. <coughs> Lisa Jeffries, he proudly nominated as he grasped her folder and held it aloft in triumph. Sad thing, that. I mean, she was beautiful at all. Bit of a bimbo, I hear, but pretty-ish. He grimaced that sort of grimace that said, what can you do, like this was just any routine death from solvent abuse or an overdose from a hard narc. Or maybe some hit and run that happened on occasion along the main stretch of highway leading out of town. These bongs will never learn, he proclaimed without any remorse, as if anything that happened or didn't to them was somehow their fault. An old libel for an entire race that made them complicit in inflicted crime. Too many of them per square foot, he said. The new housing developments will hopefully push him out a bit further. He looked around sheepishly like he was expecting some light office applause. Zimmerman transiently curled up in obedience into Nancurvis's world without even knowing anything about her and casually thought to himself too that perhaps little Lisa had it coming. 
He soon snapped out of it and told himself to get back in the game. No prejudice. He wouldn't have behaved like that if he was sitting in his Venetian office and a dead body had been brought in from Treviso or Chioggia. So why should he act like this today? It was the country, he thought. It made him complacent and presumptive. Zimmerman ran over Nankervis's report, a little sparse, and perhaps his assumptions about the man seemed right. Lise Jeffries, even her name was wrongly spelled. Date of birth, 13th of the August, 2002. For some reason, he still thought someone born after 2000 was a toddler. He looked at the photos Nankervis had taken himself in lieu of a professional crime photographer. She was grown up all right, breasts and everything. The stout collection of photographs from the scene were held together with a document clip. Took those myself, Nankervis beamed. There were plenty of images of her lying in a small circular ditch. Soon enough he would compare her pictures with the real thing. But flicking through them he was struck by how unreal they appeared. Historical almost. Her face like a death mask. He winced as he thought of the further pain Lisa's formal identification would soon inflict. Nankervis had thankfully known not to disturb too much. The orientation of the naked body was unusual. Like she had been stuffed into place, her head laid forward onto her thin chest, one arm by her side and the other in a sort of benediction, or so it seemed. The great, tie, uh, the great toes tied together with string. The feet pushed hard against the edge of the hollowed-out hole. It looked like something he had seen perhaps at the British Museum, the Stone Age girl or maybe a Neanderthal lying in its crypt, except that there was nothing here left with her for her journey into the afterlife. That was something he would have to manufacture for her, a narrative of what had happened. This exactly how you found her, Zimmerman inquired. I swear not a hair on her head has been touched. He looked earnest like he was back once more in solid testimony. Zimmerman continued reading. Garden Estate, West Parbidou Collective. Four brothers, one called Ham. What kind of name was that? And then Joseph, Arthur and Akama. Another strange one that meant whale. The size of the boy when born at ten pounds four ounces and the meaning of his name were both written in the margins of the page with three exclamation marks after them and someone in another pen had tactlessly written Jesus Christ on a police document yet. Some school reports signed off from a Mrs Ethel Whittaker, acting school principal, St Ignatius Loyola girls, a nice effort to separate them all, even up here, but it hadn't stopped Lisa's little abortion the previous year at the Port Hedland public. There was a short hospital summary, and Zimmerman noticed that she had stayed almost two weeks with a nice infection after that one. No knowledge of the identity of her impregnator. I suppose you wish to get out to the site where old Henry found, where the old Henry couple found her. Nan Curvis was standing a little uncomfortably close to Zimmerman, and he picked up the loose pages of the report, turning them over in his hands. Zimmerman grabbed them off of him and stapled them together. Don't want to lose anything now, do we? He said, and Nan Curvis's eyebrows flickered upwards as he nodded in approval disconsolately pursing his lips. He looked sufficiently contrite. Take the file with you and study it. You can talk about it later. And with that, he moved to disappear into a back corridor, seemingly losing interest in the homicide, despite the rarity of that type of event in such a small place. Zimmerman watched him walk off, saddened that he didn't even seem bothered with the mechanics of investigation at all. 
What a wanker, he thought. Uh, before you go, I need a few things from you. And Curvis looked disappointed that he might actually be called upon to do anything, like that he'd been caught out doing something a little underhanded. I want a list of all Aboriginal deaths in the region for the last 10 years, a list of the Matu deaths here and beyond, at least over the territory of the Great Sandy Desert. I'll need to cross-check them against one another. Then Curvis looked annoyed, and his eyes did a curved arc spanning the heavens. From Geraldton in the west to Eight Mile eastwards, Carafa up north down to Marble Bar and everywhere in between. And Curvis looked shocked and started to walk off again. Do you know how many stations I'll have to call for that information? I wouldn't even know where the regional station list is. It'll take me a month. Half this shit isn't even digitised, so that's a hand job. And I wouldn't even do it to you if you gave me a hand job. He wasn't smiling now and he repeated himself to emphasise his newly allocated difficulties. Nothing up here is computerised. You do know that, don't you? Zimmerman ignored his protestations and told him that there was more. I'll need every Aboriginal section by a psychiatrist in the last five years and summaries of all your unsolved cases. Still more. All those from the Matu charged with sexual assault and a background on Vernon Jeffries. I don't want it in a month, Manker. Zimmerman tried with a made-up nickname to humanise the whole task and to appeal to a camaraderie between them that didn't yet exist. I want it next week, old son. You wouldn't want it to reflect on you that the regional boys, just how uncooperative you've been, Zimmerman played his hand, or how commendable this uh, office clearly is. He was used to buttering up people. Most rolled over like a happy war or sunning itself in the spotlight of its apparent genius. And then Curvis was not immune to a little flattery. His eyes glazed over with the notion that this might be his ticket out of this dump. A chance to fall back into favour. An ambition long thought extinct. Back to somewhere civilised. Traffic lights, cable news, edible Chinese food. The thought of it all made him soften into a smile. Is that all? Nan Curvis asked. How the heck am I going to fill the rest of the afternoon? He said cynically. He left quite disconsolate, annoyed that he hadn't thought of much of this himself, and more annoyed that now it was all that he could think about. Zimmerman would study the one file he had in his possession later. As he walked out, there was a pretty young constable manning the desk, there as a temp. He eyed her off, a blonde with the mark of a nose ring that she clearly took out for work. Hi, hun. Does this town have a library? he asked. He would have liked to have asked her a whole lot more. Yeah, it's only open for two hours, three afternoons a week. We're not exactly a university town, she laughed. Really quite beautiful. It's your lucky day. It should be open. Coming out of this building, turn right, and then it's about half a mile up on the left. I wouldn't walk, though. Might get your nice floor shines scuffed. She played with a piece of chewing gum, partially spitting it out and coiling it around her index finger like she was at some college party rather than where she was. He laced his hand around her arm in a way some men do in flirting, and she tightened up her biceps to impress him. I bet you have powerful thighs too, he said as he walked out. She wasn't offended, yammering that she hoped she would see him again, but he was already outside, and he hadn't heard. It was a double trip, and the library would have to wait. Out first to Dr Messner's, at least to get him off his back, and then over to the Jeffreys to bring them there for identification. He felt a little sick thinking about it. The road to Messner's was like any Australian bush drive, 
the town left such little mark that it disappeared quickly as he passed a small rough hill, a place more defined by the signs leading away from it, 150 kilometres from Port Hedland, an hour's drive to 80 Mile Beach and so forth. The signs told him where he was, by where he wasn't. Almost immediately he was into thick bushland, what had singled out that stretch of bush from any other to have a few buildings placed upon it seemed just one of those mysteries. There was no obvious vantage points to warn of hostile attack. The forest trees not only told their age but their history. The spinifex bush was thick and parts of the eucalypts <coughs> were ringed by the black bark that had whispered of a not-so-ancient fire. Who were these arsonist pricks up here, he thought, he stopped for a piss before making Messner's. It was eerily quiet, except for the flapping of a mulga parrot. Midstream, he mulled over what the bird was doing so far north of its normal habitat. The sun was beating down fairly hard, and as he pulled up, Messner came out, excitedly waving his arms. Where the fuck have you been? I had to stay here last night. It's fucking creepy. You know I have a practice to run, and you're fucking that up. Well, good morning to you too, Dr Messner. My apologies for these were extenuating circumstances. I still have to bring the family to identify her, but I wanted to check with you first and come here to view her. And then the coroner's office will be here later this afternoon by helicopter to airlift her back to Perth. The chopper was perhaps a little profligate, but in such a remote murder case where all autopsies were performed in one place, the WAPF preferred to fork out to bring its bodies home in style. There were no unsanitary road trip decompositions any longer, and the accuracy of their drug screens had greatly improved, but Messner did not seem satisfied. Zimmerman had googled him, and it turned out that he was a professor of surgery in some place near Stuttgart, but it had been fired over poor results. He was no academic slouch either, nearly 200 scientific papers, but a small breakdown had landed him here. Zimmerman couldn't figure out if they were lucky to have him or not, but perhaps the vodka bottle in the cabinet was some sort of clue. Messner told him to hurry along and showed him into the procedure room. She's fucking contaminating this whole fucking place, he sighed, picking up a forceps and slamming it back onto the preparation table. It was all within earshot of his surgery, had there been anyone there to hear his ravings. Do any of your sentences not have fuck in them? Zimmerman inquired. It seemed to encourage him a little further. Fuck off, he replied. I can leave it to you to do whatever it is the fuck you do, can't I? And make sure she's out of here by the afternoon. We have to fucking disinfect the whole fucking room. It appeared to be a day of people with more responsibility than they were prepared to accept, leaving him to his own devices. As Messner walked out, Zimmerman was pretty sure he heard him mutter fucking Jew, but maybe he'd imagined it. She was shrouded under an operation sheet, and he pulled it back swiftly in one dramatic, rustling go. <clears throat> Even though she was naked, he first looked at her face. He then surveyed the rest of the body. She was her mother, all right, and he felt a bit maudlin and emotional. He panicked a little, even though he had done this sort of thing many times before. For this one, there seemed to be more at stake. Settle down, he thought. He was a professional, for Christ's sake, and he steadied and checked himself. First things first, check the tattoo, and there it was, quite delicate as tattoos go, with a creeping cherry blossom snaking its way from her left great toe up over the ankle. A small calling bird was perched at one bough. It was Japanese in design, and he made a note in his exercise book. 
Her toenails were painted with an elaborate pattern that matched her fingers, but the great toenail had been wrenched off and the two big toes were tied together with twine. A little strange. The fingernails were clean as a whistle, no dirt there. The intrepid pathologist, Professor Atwood, would scour these looking for skin particles and swabbing them for the minutest trace of extraneous DNA, but there was no sign of a struggle here. The nail painting would have taken time and it would have been expensive. It might help trace her last moments. Zimmerman filed it all away for future mental reference. Messner was shouting outside. There was a crashing sound and Zimmerman opened the door a little way to see a truckie arguing over a consultation fee. The truckie had picked up the phone and hurled it across the room, hitting a framed portrait of the laughing cavalier. Zimmerman had no time for such shit and he locked the procedure room door behind him. The external noise abated. He turned his attention once more to the girl. Her head was partially shaved on one side with raven locks falling over the pruning. It was quite trendy, but not any more. He partly pushed her body to one side and noted the echimosis of blood that had pooled at her back and which had occurred naturally post-mortem. She'd been in this position for some while, and the lack of leaves, dirt or marks on her front suggested that her killer made no effort to conceal her. He only wished that he had seen her in locus before she'd been moved, but even this indirect knowledge suggested that the whole thing was brazen. Either it was very calculated or totally spontaneous. Regardless, he, or she, had made no amendments after the act. What was done was done. Decisive but calm, he thought. Another mental note. Resolute. Matter of fact. The back of the left hill was also a little strange. A thin slice of parchment paper with finger-like projections across the skin was still adherent and came away after inching his pen knife under it. It left a clean part of the skin of the sole untouched by mud, like a silhouette or a sunburn. He ran his thumb gently back and forth along the complex contours of the paper. It was soft and hide-like, old vellum. There might be something somewhere with a matching other piece. The markings looked familiar but fragmented, angularised, blocked capitals with dots above and below. He photographed it all with his smartphone and placed the small piece into a Ziploc bag. He recognised the Hebrew capitalizations immediately, but its meaning was unclear. All those hours being slapped around the head by old Mrs Lieberman in Hebrew school to get the basic alphabet into his skull. There every Sunday when all the other kids were playing outside or smoking cigarettes. Maybe it had all been worth it. He recognised the capital Aleph to the right of the note. But what of the single small dot above its head? The language still seemed so foreign to him, even after years of loose, disinterested study. It was such a reduced lexicon when nothing included was meaningless. A letter or more was missing. And the next word to the left, it was pronounced Tir. It wasn't clear, but he would send it to an Orthodox friend who ran the Chabad house for Jewish zealots in Perth. They were fanatics there but his friend would know. What's more, he would appreciate the meaning, and the meaning behind the meaning. If anyone would know, Izzy Mandelstam would know. There were somehow almost too many clues. It was as if whoever had done this might have wanted the attention, the calling card of a lunatic or even a serial. 
In his mind, Zimmerman had already ruled out an ex-boyfriend or some stray John she might have picked up off the truck stop. There were plenty of those, but few would have been so strategic. Maybe military, or a teacher, proud and confident. Definitely not a crime of passion, premeditated, educated, older. His time at the Carabinieri School in Venice had taught him how to think this way. He had taken a course there after they had caught a serial killer at Judeca, terrorising old ladies over a particularly brutal summer. He had learned the pattern clues, the complex rope knots, the perforations cut out of the panties, the star-shaped carvings into the breasts. He'd seen it all, or so he thought. It was sick, all right, but the direttore, Professor Baldassare Castiglione, told them all that the signs always sang to him. Try hard enough and you can almost taste the victory over your assailant, he had said. No matter how perfect the crime, Zimmerman knew that there was always a signature for someone to spot, plain as the nose on his face. No one could cover that sort of thing up. The professor's aphorisms had stuck with Zimmerman long after its end. That, in remembrance of the fine summer, bedding the coarse agent while her husband was out of town. The pattern of discoloration was particularly livid at the base of the neck, fanning upwards in diminishing intensity as it approached her jawline. She had clearly been strangled with the demarcation of stagnant blood marking the tourniquet point. The small, fragile vessels over the whites of her eyes had suffused and burst as she had been asphyxiated, groping and grasping for air. Again he photographed her, snapping away from all angles like she was a model shoot. Pushing her mandible to one side, he felt the stiff rigor mortis that had set in and lifting her neck, he could see a complicated trail pattern of impressions on its side. First one small circle and then an ellipse and then a circle again, in bunches and then a space and then a bunch of marks again and still more and more, five little clusters in all. Below the middle of the marking was the impression of what looked like the letter L or maybe possibly an H in the place where the two collarbones greeted each other at the base of the neck. The suprasternal space, it was called. He remembered it from his anatomy classes. No, it, it was definitely an L. The marks were so unusual, he photographed them again. Whilst he was there, he took a picture of her toes, held together almost in some sort of penance, as if she had been in a macabre children's three-legged race or suffered the practical joke of someone tying her shoelaces together while she had been asleep. It was a sufficient signal so that he could email the images to himself and he cc'd in an old friend for safekeeping. It was his common habit. As throttlings go, it was unconventional. No garrote would have made that kind of mark, seemingly more impressionable itself by all the surrounding swelling. It clearly wasn't a wire or a rope or someone's nylon pantyhose. This was something the murderer had probably carried around with him just for the purpose. By now he was sure it was a man who had brought his favourite weapon of choice to this tryst. A lucky charm. If that were true, he'd done it before. Who knows? Maybe many times. And if the skin was so edematous around the strangle mark, maybe he'd done her strangling a few times too. She would have struggled in between, waking sufficiently to experience the whole trauma over and over again. But there were no other bruises on her arms or legs as if she'd been fighting and kicking. She most likely had been drugged. Atwood would find it with his tox screen. He never missed a trick. 
The cruelty was no rash act, and he guessed that it was someone she knew. But what could young Lisa have done or known herself that would have thrown him into such a rage? He needed to know much more about the girl and her circle of friends, what she liked and didn't like, the places that defined her, her routine. He'd have to stay longer here than he'd originally planned. He gently replaced the sheet back over her and smoothed it out. Atwood would sort out the sticky business of sexual assault. He had seen blood between her legs and bruising on her inner thighs, but Zimmerman's forensic training didn't make him a pathologist and he didn't look at Lisa down there any further than he had to, even whilst he had the chance to perv a little up north past her tired toes. Everyone would have to patiently wait for the scrapings, the Christmas tree colouring of chemicals that stain the sperm heads and tails, the blue light examinations, the DNA analysis, the dissection of her inner genitalia and Atwood's extirpation and his cutting up. Zimmerman knew that he would have to explain it all to her parents, probably more than once. But there will be a violation, a second degradation beyond this killing. That was the only promise he could make to them for now. Not even that he might be sure of catching the bastard who did this. At least he would get to see Marinda again. All of this needed to be done before Atwood's post-mortem. He smiled, thinking about how many times he had witnessed one of those. Now he was almost numbed. He liked the way the professor would drop the livers from a height to hear the plop sound as they wiggled against the trough of the weighing balance. 1.5 kilos, that's huge, Atwood would announce. It was his favourite word. Look at the size of that heart or spleen or penis. That's huge. Both would have laughed out loud irreverently. Zimmerman then collected himself and summed it all up, jotting down some brief notes. How long she had been dead, he wasn't certain. But since there was only the lividity and rigour, it couldn't have been more than three days. There had been a soapiness on the back of her legs, and he figured that she'd been lying under water in the ditch. That kind of saponification only happened when the fats in the skin all broke down, and it would have normally taken a little time. Another mental note. He was formulating his killer like a film director, panning across the room and capturing the day's last shot. Lights, camera, action. A fucking Fellini, he thought. He was taking in what he needed and editing the dross onto the cutting room floor. Professor Castiglione would have been so proud. Mm.